You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the Old Testament book of Jonah. Here's Nate. Well, the main character in the book of Jonah seems to be God himself. Jonah, of course, is the prominent human figure, but the book of Jonah seems to be a message both to Jonah but also to the people of Israel, God's children, and by extension, God's people in every generation, it seems to be a message to God's people about God, communicating his great heart for the world and for people. And so, the wonderful book of Jonah. Now, the prophecy, quote-unquote, of the book of Jonah is... An odd sort of book, and we find it in our English Bibles, embedded in the midst of other minor prophets who, when they came and prophesied, spoke their prophecies and eventually recorded their prophecies. And so when you read uh, some of the major prophets like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel, or you read the minor prophets like Obadiah or Hosea or Haggai, what you're discovering quite often is not necessarily a play-by-play historical account, although you'll get that from time to time. Mostly what you're reading are the words that the prophets spoke in particular historical settings to God's people, whether in the north in Israel or in the south in Judah or Well, the people were in exile and their slavery in Babylon or whether they returned from their slavery and and the post-exilic prophets. But but by and large, what you have with the prophets is a a record of the words that they spoke. The book of Jonah is completely different. From chapter 1 all the way through chapter 4, we have a play-by-play account of Jonah's life. As God spoke into his life and as Jonah rebelled against God, you have the record of his rebellion. You have the record of his prayer from the belly of the fish. You have the record of his message in Nineveh and the response of the Ninevites in Jonah chapter 3. And you have the response of Jonah to their repentance and God's lesson to Jonah to close out this book. But by and large, as you're studying and as you're reading the book of Jonah, you have to remember the original hearers of this book. Imagine being an Israelite. Perhaps with in, in that moment in time, you're filled with nationalistic fervor and hope. And perhaps your view of the Gentile pagan world is rather low. You don't want to see them give their lives to God. You aren't rooting for their conversion as a people. You sit down and read the book of Jonah and you see God tells one of your prophets to actually go to the most wicked of people, the Assyrians as represented in their capital city, the city of Nineveh. You read of Jonah rebelling against that call and then you read of Jonah submitting to God's plan for his life, going to Nineveh, the Ninevites repenting. And God, relenting from the disaster, he promised that he would bring upon the citizens of Nineveh. And you see the response of Jonah, his anger at the grace and the mercy 
and the long-suffering nature of God. And you see God dealing with Jonah quite forcefully and quite frankly. And what you should realize as you read this is that you yourself potentially have a heart like Jonah and God wants you to have a heart like his heart. Really, the book of Jonah is a book that is designed by God to convert the heart of his people to care for the things that he cares for and to have the priority that he carries for the people of this world. A secondary message would be that the people of Israel should see that in a very brief little message that Jonah delivered, the Ninevites found repentance and God forgave them. God had sent messenger after messenger, however, with word after word after word to the Israelites who were stuck in idolatrous practices at this point in northern Israel, and they refused to repent. And so they should be humbled to see the Ninevites respond so wonderfully to the message of God. But we should get into the text today, so let's dig in in verse 1. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. And so the word of the Lord comes to Jonah. We don't know how the word came to Jonah, but it's the word of the Lord. God speaks to Jonah somehow, some way. And we find there in verse 1 that the word of the Lord came to a man named Jonah, the son of Amittai. Now, it's interesting because in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, Jonah is mentioned in the historical record. He was a man from Gath-Hefer, meaning he was from the region in Galilee, uh, which is interesting because the scribes said, Has any prophet ever come from Galilee? Apparently they didn't remember this prophet Jonah. But the interesting thing is that Jonah prophesied during the reign of Jeroboam number two. Not the original Jeroboam who took the ten northern tribes away from Solomon's son Rehoboam. But a second king later on down the line named Jeroboam. Jonah had actually prophesied, it says in 2 Kings. He had prophesied that during Jeroboam's reign, the borders in Israel would expand. So Jonah, in one sense, before the book of Jonah, had a wonderfully positive message to communicate to the nation of Israel. And this was, of course, unique to many of the prophets. Many of the prophets had negative messages. I mean, they were all positive in the sense that they'd come from God. And even if they were harsh in tone or demanding or pleading for their repentance and confession of sin and all of that, which would be negative at first, that negative would, of course, lead to a great positive, God's restoration of his people. But Jonah came with a fairly positive message. You know, during Jeroboam's reign, our borders are going to expand. Maybe that had a little something to do with Jonah's response to what God said to him in verse 2. The Lord said to him, Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before 
mean? Now, Nineveh would be located about 550 miles to Jonah's east, uh, northeast, and was a great city in the sense that it was a large city. And God tells Jonah, listen, you need to go to this capital city of Assyria and you need to cry out against it. Now, contemporary prophets of Jonah were Hosea and Amos. And both of them hinted that the Israelites would be driven out by the Assyrians. Amos referred to in Amos chapter 5 verse 27, the Israelites being carried away beyond Damascus, which would have indicated Assyrian territory. But Hosea, in Hosea chapter 11, verse 5, blatantly said, listen, the people are going to be carried away, not to Egypt as in past times, but into Assyria. So it's very possible that at the time that Jonah hears this word from the Lord to go to Nineveh, the Assyrian capital, and cry out against the people there, it's very possible that in Israel, there's already the understanding that the Assyrians, not only are they an evil and bad people, but they are enemies of Israel and potentially will come against Israel in the future as God's disciplinarian for the evil and the idolatry that had crept into that Israelite territory. And so he says, cry out against it for their evil has come up before me. And the historical record shows that the Assyrians at the time of Jonah and even after the time of Jonah, past the generation that eventually repented, were an incredibly evil people. They had thought of very cruel measures to torture prisoners of war and very cruel warfare methods. They were a cruel and violent people. But Jonah, as he hears this, like I said, perhaps with the prophecies of Hosea and Amos ringing in his ear, it says in verse 3 that Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now, Jonah hears God's directive. Hey, 550 miles northeast, that's where you need to go to preach to the people in Nineveh for their great evil. And Jonah instead goes down to Joppa. Interesting selection, a coastal town. And from Joppa, he gets in a boat where he pays his fare in order to sail to Tarshish, which is modern-day Spain, which would have been as far west as Jonah could possibly imagine going. And the whole reason that he's doing this is to, and it's very explicit here, mentioned twice, to flee from the presence of the Lord. Imagine a prophet of Israel trying to flee, trying to run from God's presence. Now, I want to say something at this point as we study through the book of Jonah. There is, of course, a lesson in Jonah's life concerning disobedience. I've talked to so many people who have said, oh, I love, I love the book of Jonah. I can so relate to Jonah. That man in his disobedience, 
He knew what God wanted for him, and yet he ran in the opposite direction. We've even sometimes said things like, well, I just pulled a Jonah. Meaning, hey, I knew what I was supposed to do, and I didn't do it. Well, the book is, in one sense, a great lesson about disobedience and what it does in our lives. And I'll talk about that in a moment. But on a deeper level, Jonah was asked specifically to go preach to a certain people group. And so this book, you could say in an even finer sense concerning Jonah, it's about disobedience in preaching to the people that God asks us to preach to. It could be a book about disobedience in preaching the message. But an even finer point is this. It seems that the Ninevites were ripe for the message. And there are different seasons and moments in history and time where someone in your life or a people group that we're exposed to as the body of Christ will be ripe for the message of the gospel. And so to pull a Jonah would be to be disobedient to God at a moment when he presents us a ripe person or people group or environment in which we are called to preach the gospel and we say, no, I don't want to be involved in that work. Jonah was disobedient and ran from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord, verse 4, hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. Notice here what happens. First of all, these sailors, these mariners, they are greatly afraid at this storm. Now that was significant because these are sailors who are sailing to Tarshish. This means that they were experienced sailors. This was no short journey for inexperienced sailors. These had to be qualified men. And even they are afraid at this storm that they're enduring. So they start throwing cargo overboard and calling out to their gods, which you would expect them to do, these pagan men. Uh, But Jonah was down in the belly of the ship, the inner part of the ship, and had lain down and was fast asleep. One of the first things to notice about disobedience is that, you know, at first it's all downhill. Jonah ran to Joppa, paid the fare, went down to Joppa, went down into the boat. He goes down, down, down. You know, disobedience is so easy at first obedience so often is difficult at first. It's the road less traveled. It can be hard. It can be painful. You can lose friends. You can lose business associates. You can lose financially to be obedient to the Lord. But another thing that you see here is that disobedience often initially brings a delusional sense of peace. Jonah is about to get thrown overboard. He's about to get swallowed by a fish. He's in the midst of an incredible storm, but he's sleeping like a baby in the bottom of that boat. He has peace over his heart that he should not have. 
And so many people will say, well, I'm doing this because it feels good. And they understand to be obedient to the Lord would be a difficult thing. And there might be a real lack of peace. I might experience some hostility. I might experience some anger if I am obedient to the Lord at this moment. At first, it might be downhill. And at first, disobedience may give you a disillusional sense of peace. Now, upon seeing this, it says in verse 6 that the captain came to him and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. So the sailor, this captain, he implores Jonah. He says, please pray for us that we will not perish, that we might live. This reminds us of the gospel message that all who believe on Christ would not perish, but have everlasting life. He says, pray for us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, verse 7, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Notice that Jonah did not volunteer for a thing. He knows full well that this storm is because of him, but he is not going to cough that information up. They said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. It's interesting to me, the first question that these sailors ask Jonah, the first question on their lips, what is your occupation? Their next question, where do you come from? And what is your country? And of what people are you? The thing you need to notice is that the answer to all of these questions would be exceedingly embarrassing for Jonah to answer. I mean, first of all, what's your occupation? Well, I'm a prophet. What's a prophet? Well, a prophet is a man who works for God. Well, what does he do for God? Well, whatever God tells him to do, even if it's odd, he does it. And whatever God tells him to say, even if it's odd or hard, he says it. And Jonah here is a man who God has given his directive to, and he's fully ignored it. Not only that, but he's from Israel. They ask him, where are you from? I'm from Israel. The place where God lives. The place where God dwells. These are embarrassing things for Jonah to answer. And he has to tell them, he says, I'm a Hebrew. This is a, a title that would signify I'm a part of God's covenant people. And on top of that, I fear the Lord. He uses the name of God, the Lord. And he says, he's the God of heaven. All of this, this story, he's over all of this. He's in charge of all of this. He's the God of heaven. And beyond that, he says, and he made the sea and the dry land. He created all of this. He's authoritative in all of this. Now, another thing I want you to see about disobedience is that eventually... It will embarrass you. And I say eventually because at first, oftentimes, it won't. But eventually, even if it's on the day of judgment, it will. Obedience, on the other hand, to the Lord, 
Although initially it might embarrass you eventually, even if it's on the day of the Lord, it will be to your credit. It will honor you that you obeyed the Lord. Then the men, verse 10, were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, this was his answer. They're asking, what do we got to do for the sea to quiet down? And he says to them, pick me up, verse 12, and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. So Jonah looks at these pagan sailors and he says, this is the way you have to do. You have to throw me into the ocean. Now, if you were an Israelite reading this book of Jonah, with the attitude you had for the Gentile pagan world, you would assume that the next thing that happened is that these sailors gleefully chucked Jonah into the ocean. But here's what happens. Verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. They they proclaim the sovereignty of God. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. All of this is recorded in order to surprise the reader. An Israelite with the mood that Jonah had, and Jonah is simply representing the national mood there in northern Israel especially. And the national mood was such that Gentiles were as nothing and unworthy of the message of God. And here they would be so surprised. To see these sailors not only behave honorably, but then once they have to submit to God's plan for Jonah's life, they plead with God and they sacrifice to God and they make vows to the Lord. This was designed to illustrate to them that, hey, look, these Gentile people, some of them, their hearts are very open to the Lord. Given the right circumstance, the right time, the right moment, they are ready to receive the Lord. And what a message for the church today. That there are people around us who are ready. That are ready for the salvation of the Lord. And the Lord, verse 17, appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So the Lord gives us great fish. It doesn't say a whale, although perhaps it was a sperm whale. Scientists have discovered that this would be possible to live inside of a sperm whale, although very uncomfortably uh, for this amount of time. But the Lord appoints a great fish. I don't know if it was part of the natural order or if it was created by God for that particular moment. He created the heavens and the earth with the word of his might He could do this very thing. Some have doubted the book of Jonah because of this story. And 
They're obviously approaching the book of Jonah with a presupposition that God cannot work miraculously in this kind of way. Jesus himself seems to have believed this story. He told those who were looking for a sign, he said, No sign will be given to this generation except for the sign of the prophet Jonah, who was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, and so will I be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, Jonah is swallowed by this fish for three days and three nights. There's a better than Jonah who has come. Jonah was forced into this underwater tomb because of his hatred for the message. He did not want to go and preach, but Jesus, he wanted to come and preach. And his desire to come is what landed him in his tomb for three days and three nights, far greater than Jonah. Now let's quickly cover chapter 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. The grace of God to answer Jonah, even in his distress. He was obviously praying only for that reason, but the Lord still heard. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. He says, I've named this fish. I've called it Sheol, an Old Testament name for hell. He says, out of the belly of Sheol I cried, you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep. It wasn't the sailors. It was you, Lord. I trust you. I know your sovereignty. Into the heart of the seas and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. This is you, God. You have done this. Then I said, verse 4, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Now, I should mention that Jonah is quoting from various psalms at this point. Probably psalms that he never expected to quote. (laughs) Never expected to need. But here he is crying out to the Lord from the belly of this fish. He has been broken before God. He says, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. I was there, I was drowning, I was left for dead, but you heard my cry. When my life, verse 7, was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple, likely the temple in heaven. Those who pay regard to vain idols, verse 8, forsake their hope of steadfast love. He's talking about the idolatry now of those around them in the sailors, the Ninevites, but also the idolatry that was rampant in Israel. But I, verse 9, with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And this is what God wanted Jonah to, to say. And with that, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Upon that word, when he said, salvation belongs to the Lord. It doesn't belong to Jonah to give to whomever he wants. And it doesn't belong to Israel to to give to whomever we want. It belongs to the Lord. He can give it to whomever he desires to give it. Even these Assyrian people there in Nineveh, if he wants to reach them, then he is allowed because it's his possession. Salvation, it is not ours. Salvation is 
belongs to the Lord. What a beautiful attitude for the church to possess today. Lord, you can use us to preach to and to reach whoever you want us to preach to and whoever you want us to reach because salvation belongs to you. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.